hold against us. Being born with no luck and mourning is stuck. Fight the power like Chuck. Raise against the machines and not give it fucks. Pain to solve with one slug. We know we're on the drugs, we war on black thugs. Politicians just rug. Ain't no help from above, they don't wanna see us up. Community Votes, your eco-feminist radio show on KMRE 102.3 FM. My name is Liz Darrow, and joining me today is an awesome bunch of folks from People First Bellingham. I'll let y'all introduce yourselves. Okay, I'll start. Hey, I'm Maya Morales um, with People First Bellingham. I'm happy to be here with Liz and Seth and Sage today. Hi, uh, Sage Jones. I'm also with People First Bellingham and Whatcom DSA, and I'm thrilled to um, have an opportunity to talk about People First Bellingham and also just hang out with some C2C folks as well. Hi, I'm Seth Mangold, he, him, uh, with People First Bellingham and Whatcom DSA. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for making the time for this conversation, y'all. So let's just start at the beginning. There's four initiatives coming up on the ballot in... Oh gosh, roughly two weeks. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could each either like take turns, just lay out for us what the initiatives are and what they'll do. 
Yeah, I mean, I can start with uh, initiative one since that's how we did it in the forum this weekend. Um, so the first one is renter relocation assistance and um, it both increases notice for um, rental increases above 5% from 60 days to 90 days. I don't know if anybody's moved recently, but it took us like five months to find a house that we wanted to live in. So people need all the time they can get to make adjustments when they're displaced from their housing because of cost. Um, and then the renter relocation assistance kicks in at 8% increases per year. Um, and what that means is if your landlord raises your rent more than 8% and you can't afford to stay and you move, then your landlord has to pay you um, three months rent in relocation assistance. Um, if you do stay, you just have to deal with the rental increase and uh, that's how that works. There's some exemptions um, and it was an initiative that had language borrowed from a law that Portland City Council passed. And um, just last week, Seattle City Council uh, voted in favor of um, a renter relocation assistance, which in some ways is stronger than ours. It has six months um, notice for rental increases, but it's also equivalent to three months rent for the relocation assistance. Cool, I guess we're going in order. So I'll speak to initiative two. Um, of the four. So initiative two is a um, would institute a ban on facial recognition technologies and predictive policing technologies being used by the city of Bellingham um, and would also uh, require them not to retain that data if they have it. Um, it is also in line with what uh, I believe 22 other cities have enacted. Um, European Union just came out against it huge lawsuit in Canada against Clearview AI. So really um, putting Bellingham in line with other um, progressive movers and shakers around the country and the world um, in recognizing that these technologies are super invasive, super creepy, um, and really, really pose huge threats and problems for our civil rights and liberties. Um, so this would be a great move for Bellingham um, and it would really, um, yeah, I think, I think it'll really benefit folks of color, queer folks, immigrants, um, all targeted communities that, that would also include like journalists, activists. Um, so it's, it's a really important protection. It doesn't, just to clarify, it doesn't actually ban the use of those by federal or state agencies. It would just limit city use, so. Initiative three. It protects the right to organize for workers whose uh, employer has a contract with the city of Bellingham. Um, that employer can't use any city funds, taxpayer funds that they're receiving through those contracts um, to engage in any sort of anti-union activities like propagandizing the break room and bathroom um, or holding captive audience meetings. So, you know, we, we know that every major movement uh, social movement uh, over the past hundred years in this country has had a really strong labor backing as well. Um, but union density has been in steep decline since the Reagan administration. So uh, if we want to like fight for, you know, the really big things that we, we need healthcare and, you know, environmental um, protections, um, we really need to build back up union, union density. And, and we hope that this uh, encourages that to happen locally. 
And then uh, initiative four uh, wins workers two huge benefits. Uh, one is secure scheduling. So having uh, schedule a couple weeks in advance so folks can actually plan a life outside of work, you know, make sure they have adequate uh, childcare, make sure they're actually getting, you know, adequate rest in between, um, uh, you know, work, work days. Um, and, you know, it does that through um, giving really clear guidelines on a, a good faith, you know, interactive process between employer and employee, um, just putting more, uh, a little bit more control uh, over, you know, a worker's life into the hands of the worker. Um, and then also hazard pay uh, when, you know, we're, workers are working in hazardous conditions that, you know, was not in their job description. Uh, so, so frontline workers, you know, we're obviously thinking of, about this pandemic, but we're also thinking about the next one and not having to, to have this fight every single time uh, that workers are put in harm's way. And I would love to, if I can add to all that, just in totality, all four of those together um, create this really amazing and empowering package for workers and renters and people of color and really just create a foundation for more of that work to happen in Bellingham too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's so important to really stress to folks that it's great to vote yes on every single one of these. Um, they are individual initiatives, but they really work so well together as a package too. Yeah. Um, so going back to the beginning of all of this, y'all decided to write these initiatives and then what, like, what's the process? Yeah. So we started this process, uh, December of last year. This all comes out of Wacom DSA's electoral committee. We, uh, didn't feel like we were, were ready to run uh, a candidate again, but really wanted to do something. Uh, you know, there was a lot of immediate needs not being addressed here in Bellingham by our local government. So we decided that we wanted to explore writing some initiatives. We had seen some other chapters run uh, on these successfully. So uh, we, we did adopt a lot of language um, from those successful initiatives. Uh, we, you know, had a huge list of things that we wanted to do. You know, unfortunately we didn't get anything around, uh, you know, climate change or uh, protecting our immigrant community. But we were, because we were very limited on what we were able to do between, uh, you know, state constitution and city and county charters, um, really limited what we were able to do, but we, you know, boiled it down to these four um, and, and started fine tuning this before we submitted. Um, and I see that Sage is back, so I'll I'll pass it off to you uh, to kind of continue. We, you know, in the fall and before the fall, we see time and time again that um, when workers take their demands to city council, um, they're ignored, um, or at best, we're given some. We, you know, looked at all sides and we did what was most fair for businesses um, and, you know, our own interests. And um, that was really evident in the fall when we were asking um, for a reduction in the police budget in order to fund more social services. Um, not only was it not reduced, but it was increased. Um, and now when 
Dan Hamill talks about hazard pay um, for initiative four, he talks about cutting services from the parks and libraries again, um, instead of other budgets that are huge in the city that could uh, use a reduction. So we, we knew that we don't have the allies that we need in city council. And last year we saw Portland, Maine um, run an initiative campaign where they ran five initiatives and won four out of five of them and um, you know built a lot of power in their community and um, you know really when the voters were given the opportunity to enact legislation that they believed in um, they saw better results than when they had tried to run candidates in the past. Um, so we were incredibly inspired after their win last November, and we jumped quickly to, um, you know, find coalition partners to, like, like um, I think Seth said, uh, figure out what we could do within the legal bounds of the initiative process as it is currently written. Um, Originally, before we understood the legal bounds of the initiative process, we really wanted to run universal pre-K as an initiative. Um, and we found out that that wasn't possible uh, since we can't affect the budget or pass taxes through a citizen initiative process. Um, so we pivoted to some other issues that are important for renters and workers and um, other vulnerable communities as well. So you got the initiatives written and then like what did you need to do after that well to to get on the ballot we needed to gather 6200 uh roughly signatures for each one of the initiatives uh, and you know I, I i i said the entire time we were playing on hard mode you know uh we're in the still you know in a pandemic people are a little bit wary about getting close to to strangers um you know, and Bellingham has a really has the highest like threshold for signatures needed for uh, municipal ballot initiative. So, uh, you know, I tell people we've already made history just by getting on the ballot because uh, in the past 30 years, there's only been two other citizen led initiatives put on the ballot uh, and we just tripled it by getting on. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a grind, but so we stood outside of grocery stores. We were at the farmer's market. Um, we walked around parks and gathered signatures there, just um, hanging out with, with random people and uh, telling them about these. And uh, I've knocked a lot of doors. I've made a lot of phone calls, but by far this slate of initiatives was the easiest thing I've ever talked about, you know, politically. Um, people were really able to see the benefits to their daily life or somebody that they know and love um, and how it could benefit the community as a whole. I'd like to also add that we did that not only during a global pandemic, but we also had a historic like heat wave. Um, we were out there doing that as well. Yeah. Though I gotta say, I feel like uh, the wind was my biggest enemy the entire time, just uh, watching things, watching your, your petitions, you know, blow away or, you know, people having a hard time just even like holding the clipboard in the wind. Yeah, we found out um, which pens bleed in the rain and which ones don't uh, really quickly. 
I was going to say, I saw some strategic pen juggling too, because just trying to keep people like clean pens, dirty pens outside the grocery stores. That was like, I mean, there's a number of things that make a pretty hard um, task, even more difficult with under all those conditions. Um, so I think this is a good spot to take a quick musical break. And when we come back, um, let's talk about some of the challenges that have come up. Listen up, we've got a war zone here today right in our heartland And across the USA, these multinational bastards don't use tanks and guns, it's true But they've declared a war on us, fight back, it's up to you Oh, it's a war on the workers War on the workers death of you and me, but we're not unarmed. Our weapons solidarity. Jim Beals and Karen Silkwood, the list goes on and on. With every year that passes, 60,000 more gone. Oh, it's a war on the
Welcome back to Community Votes on KMRE 102.3 FM. We're talking about initiatives one through four with People First Bellingham. And Maya had a story that she wanted to tell. Go for it, Maya. Yes, I just wanted to talk about the excitement and the feeling of the kind of um, historical nature of this campaign when we turned in our huge stacks of petitions at City Hall. Um, And a lot of folks, not everyone was able to make it, but a lot of folks who had been out signature gathering came together, turned them in, cheered, took some photos. um, And then it felt like a whole new cycle of work began. Um, because as we waited kind of on pins and needles for the auditor to, you know, give us, yes, you're certified um, on each initiative, um, we then had to begin the work once, we, once it was certified of um, writing arguments for the voter pamphlet. Um, and there was this whole new kind of level of collaboration that started happening in these little teams. Um, and so there was really a lot to it. There was a lot of behind the scenes work um, and a lot of collaborative effort that didn't just involve signature gathering, right? There was graphic art going on. There was just so much going on. And I think that that piece um, of this campaign is something that not everyone who isn't involved in it gets to see. Um, but I think it's great to talk about it because if someone is thinking about getting involved in a campaign, what I want to say is do it and also recognize there's so many different ways to do that. Um, there's a lot of different roles. Um, and it isn't always just standing out with the clipboard. There's so many things to do. Then what happened? Like, can you talk about like each initiative and sort of pushback that you've gotten or um, what what that has been like? Because like I said, we're two weeks out from the election and it just recently has started to seem like, oh, a lot of folks are, there's a lot of buzz about this, right? So what what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we saw some pushback during the signature gathering process. Um, there was, I'm not gonna name names, but there was one business in particular who uh, one of the owners harassed three of our um, signature gatherers. And when I was finally the third person that they talked to, I was like, you should go to city council and work with them to like put forward opposing legislation that works better for, for you. And I was like really honest about that. I was like, this is how this works. Um, You know, we proposed our legislation. That's, you know, what we brought forward. City council gets the option to propose opposing legislation that's uh, more mild mannered and uh, works for their interests. Um, And we didn't see that happen for any of the initiatives, right? We... I'm friends with some of the city council members on Facebook. They, they clearly like saw the posts about it. They knew it was happening. It's like their job to know what's going on in city government. Right. Um, and they acted in July when the initiatives finally got certified, like that was their one window to, um, bring these issues forward. Like what if we'd fallen, you know, a hundred signatures short, like, there, what they said is there was no way that they were going to put similar legislation on the ballot this year, um, regardless of if we made our goals or not. So that was uh, definitely one of the challenges because uh, we, we kind of expected there to be more 
choices on the ballot than there even are. Um, and yeah, city city council did not deliver. Yeah, that's making me think about, you know, when we started this conversation, we're talking about precedent set in other cities. Um, so it sounds to me like those efforts have been brought by city council in other places, right? So actual legislation that protects renters and workers and um, these kinds of issues. Whereas in this case, these are um, individuals, um, lots and lots of individuals who saw this need and that nothing's being done to address it, right? Indeed. To me, it seems like this could be interpreted as a mandate to city council and county council, um, like as an example of what people will do if nothing's being done, right? That's certainly how, how we look at it, you know, that this was a mandate. And um, yeah, city council's inaction on all these issues and more are, are why we brought them forward. Um, it was surprising to, to see that they didn't propose anything else to put on the ballot when that would have, I think, you know, like muddied the waters a little bit more, but um, now it, it is a little bit more of a, a binary choice. It's, it's either yes or no on any of these. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna take another quick break because we have such a nice list of music from y'all. I wanna make sure to get those songs in. Um, and then I, I think we can take a deep dive into um, what they've done instead.
Welcome back to Community Votes. Um, we're talking with Maya and Seth and Sage from People First Bellingham, um, looking at sort of opposition to these initiatives. I haven't really heard anything concrete against initiatives one through three. Um, I have heard people say, well, you know, at first glance, I support one through three, but uh, so-and-so said there'd be a lot of legal problems. So that's going to cost the city a lot of money. Um, what else have all y'all heard, if anything? That's been most of it is, is vague reference to legal problems, um, which I think is uh, very convenient because legal problems can mean a variety of things. Like, for instance, with Initiative 1, I think what they mean by legal problems is that like, like in Oregon, it, it might get challenged because landlords like are going to try to claim it's rent control when it's not that has failed in courts in Oregon multiple times. Um, it's relocation assistance. Um, it's, you know, there's relocation assistance in other cities in Washington as well. Um, so yeah, they might have to defend initiative one, um, but it's winnable and then we get relocation assistance like um just do your job um so i mean as far as legal issues of course power is going to push back on these initiatives because these initiatives challenge power um and power is very comfortable using the court system to their advantage. Um, but we're also ready to defend these initiatives. Yes, the city has a right and responsibility to defend these initiatives if they pass, but we don't plan to sit idly aside. Um, in Portland, Maine, where we based our campaign off of, they have spent time in courts defending um, you know, their, their initiatives that they passed as well. So um, we, we don't think that the, the legal challenges are a problem, um, but like that's part of politics is um, that, that things are, are going to get challenged if, if they affect people that have the ability to challenge them. Yeah, it's really not uncommon for a citizen-led initiative to after it wins, you know, go to court. Um, I think the opposition will often see, you know, those in power will see that it's, it might be easier uh, avenue for them to fight it uh, after it wins, because they know it, it's already going to be popular. But if they can, uh, you know, nitpick it in court, that they can, you know, might have an easier time. I'm really um, thinking about what Sage said, which is that city council could have proposed alternatives, right? And so their claim that this is going to be so problematic legally could have potentially cost less money if they had ideas before the election that could have gone on the ballot. Um, but speaking of before the election, uh, last week, city council voted unanimously on a resolution against all four initiatives, right? Um, so this is an interesting moment because you've already been endorsed by the Whatcom Dems. Um, who have propped up a lot of the people who are in city council in many ways. I mean, this is the way our political machine cranks out folks here, right? So um, there's tension there, but there's also, I noticed in a forum that you all participated in on Saturday, um, that initiative one, there was no one 
speaking against it in that forum, but all the other three initiatives in the opposition, pretty much the only argument was city council says this is bad for us. So I was reading in the news that um, council president Stone had said, well, we didn't want to say anything earlier because we didn't want to influence voters. But I was like, wait, did I miss the election? Like that hasn't happened yet. And and people all of a sudden, you know, it just caught on like wildfire, like, oh, city council says this is going to be a problem. So what do you all think about that manipulation? I, mean, I haven't talked for a little while, so I'm going to start. And I'm just yeah. going to say I um, have so many thoughts about that. But I think bottom line to me and, you know, Sage touched, touched on this as well. Um, I think it is a face saving move. And I also think it is an effort to avoid the work that it will take. Um, that this council and possibly others in the city do not want to do on behalf of workers and renters um, because it will take some defense and it will also take um, a lot of work to just, you know, I mean, it's a new, they're new laws. There are four of them at once. And they're, you know, they're, they're big, beautiful projects and they, they do involve the city figuring out implementation. And that is work. And I think, um, you know, I think that they know that they probably should have come with other alternatives if they had any issues with these and they know that they didn't. Um, we kind of called them out on that a bit. And I think they probably felt a little backed into a corner and decided to take this wild position. And I'm going to call it wild because I think it is a pretty wild position. I mean, it's sort of directly against the folks in your community who've, you know, offered their signature. Um <laughs> 36,000 times uh, to put this on the ballot. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's really significant and, um, and problematic. I'll pass the baton over to Sage and Seth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to add that, you know, let's, let's look back four years at the no new jail effort. Um, and city council took, you know, a more mixed, but still very similar stance um, where they took a position on the jail that it should be built. And then it went to the voters and the voters overwhelmingly said, we don't want a new jail. Um, so this isn't the first time that the city council has weighed in heavily on, um, something that would go directly to the voters. And, you know, I have faith in the voters. I, I really hope that they, see this for what it is that power is being challenged and that city council was pressured by business interests who they're friends with um, to take a position on this and they did because they listen when uh, you know people in power in our community um, ask them to do things yeah one one claim that city council made last week uh, on why the decided to like take this more public position was because uh, them not speaking out against it earlier in, in the summer when they had to put our initiatives on the ballot when we had enough verified signatures. Um, yeah, last week they were claiming that, well, we, our, our, our silence was seen as an endorsement of these and, or, you know, at least not against them. But to us who had watched their meeting, you know, talking up their discussions about it this past summer, uh, it was clear to us that they were against us um, because we were essentially with these initiatives calling them out on, on their inaction. And they didn't take too kindly to that. 
Yeah, we weren't confused about where they stood on things. Yeah, that's an interesting um, reason to give. I mean, it just kind of boggles the mind if it if it were true governance and they were doing their job to represent the folks who have elected them, their job having not proposed any alternatives would be to wait and see what it is that voters decide that they want. Anyway, um, so I wanted to dedicate a good chunk of time to initiative four, because that's the one that's really got folks ruffled. So um, can you just give us a breakdown of what what the opposition to initiative four has been? Like, let's let's follow the money, right? Um, Initiative four is opposed by a bunch of corporate PACs and DoorDash and um, the local sanitation company is the one one local donation against. Um, for- Hold on, wait. Can we pause there for a minute? Because I am bummed about that. I've been such a huge fan of sanitary service company for the whole 23 years I've lived here for um, not a lot of reasons, but like last summer during the Bellingham cold storage strike and, you know, I mean, the owners are not the workers. I get that obviously, but like having that show of solidarity from the garbage truck drivers was oh, I amazing. Loved it, yeah. That was a beautiful yeah. thing to see. Cause yeah, they were, those operations are, you know, down the road from each other. Um, and yeah, when standing on that, uh, cold storage picket line and seeing the, the sanitation workers drive by and, and give the biggest honks was always, uh, you know, the highlight. So super cool. I realize that's a tangent, but I'm just saying like on the very off chance that Joanne ever listens to this podcast, I am hugely disappointed. Okay. It's a good tangent though, right? Because like the owners are not the workers is true in a lot of places. Um, we're, we're seeing the same thing where, you know, when we were gathering signatures, the owners at one of the businesses that's most prominently come out against initiative four, their workers came out and, and signed all four initiatives. And, and that happened at most places that we were out in front of, you know, workers are not coming out publicly um, in support of these initiatives. Um, for I think two reasons. Uh, one is they're afraid of their bosses and two, um, like their bosses in some cases are saying, hey, we're gonna fire you if this passes. Um, there's a there's a lot of coercion going on and I think workers are scared. Um, and that really that really sucks that, you know, they're being put in that position. Um, when, you know, I think, as we pointed out in the League of Women Voters debate, you know, the, the science behind wage increases points to the fact that, yes, there might be temporarily, temporary reductions in, in profit. Uh, working class people spend their money when they get more money. Um, so I think these businesses are going to see a lot more business um, if their employees are getting compensated fairly for the risks that they're taking. Since you brought up that League of Women Voters, I wanted to give Seth an opportunity. He was talking about how frustrating that format can be if someone says something that is completely false and there's no opportunity um, for rebuttal or correction of facts. Um, Not sure since that was several days ago, Seth, if you have any examples off the top of your head, but um, there was kind of this, to me, one thing that was interesting was the discussion of salaried employees, which confused me because when I read the initiative, I didn't understand that salaried employees would be given hazard pay. Can you help me understand that piece of it? 
Sure. Yeah. So I, I did misspeak a little bit saying that salaried employees uh, would never be entitled to hazard pay um, where they actually would be. But uh, in, in a lot of cases, in, in a lot of white collar jobs that can be performed remotely, you know, not on the front line. Uh, a lot of white collar jobs are, you know, salary jobs are not on, on front lines other than, you know, maybe nurses and teachers and they should absolutely be paid more all the time. Um, those are the jobs that are like the building blocks of our, of a good society, right. Is, is healthcare and education. Uh, the, I would say that the, the biggest thing, uh, that I can remember, you know, the misconception put out there, was actually around uh, the secured scheduling. Uh, they were trying, the opposition was trying to frame it as like very restrictive. Um, whereas again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, introducing this initiative, uh, it's really more about uh, clear guidance on how to have good conversations. Uh, if an employee wants to have a, a more random schedule, they're absolutely able to still have that. Uh, they are still, you know, able to voluntarily pick up shifts and trade shifts amongst each other. Um, one, one thing that the opposition said a couple times is that, you know, this initiative pits, you know, employers and employees against each other. Um, that, you know, every good business, you know, is a collaboration between the two, uh, where, you know, in my view, uh, labor does create all the wealth uh, in any sort of business. Um, and that, you know, that opposite, the opposition statement that, you know, that employers and employees are, are pitted against each other. Well, that's inherent to that relationship. You know, I know a lot of small businesses kind of get away with that. Um, having the, you know, kind of, we are all family here, you know, buddy, buddy, um, which, you know, is, is, is all good and well, but, but there is an inherent power dynamic uh, that needs to be addressed that, it, you know, the opposition completely ignored because they are our business owners themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I can add to that, I mean, I think that like the aspect of that scheduling thing that is so powerful is, and I think this is true of most employment laws is that they do acknowledge that power imbalance and they try to put into place protections that help fix it. So, or help somewhat equalize it, right? Um, shift that balance of power a bit. And I think that's exactly what that secure scheduling does. Um, it actually institutes a system for making sure that employers are checking with their workers, making sure they're giving them advance notice of their schedule, right? making sure that they're responsive. If a worker is like, yo, I've had a life catastrophe and this has come up and I need some personal time. So there's just so much built into that, that actually really does shift that, that, that power balance for the worker. Um, and I don't think that it, it puts an employer at a disadvantage at all. I think if anything, it probably, um, if they're following it in good faith, it probably helps create better relationships in the workplace, um, if anything. I want to say for listeners who have for years and years um, tuned into discussions against the exploitative H2A program, um, what we hear from farmers, from owners is um, our workers are like family. And I don't know about y'all, but like 
I don't treat my family like that. You know, if, if people are out there dying in the heat and the wildfire smoke, um, if the only reason to support H2A labor is because it's cheap and that's why the owners want it. So um, that is not a, an appropriate way to treat your family. And I feel the same way about this debate when owners are just saying like, we're so good to our workers. Why would we pay them more and give them predictable schedules? You know, it's like, what are you talking about? That's, that's horrific. And the debate largely that I'm seeing, of course, takes place on the internet. Um, so it's pretty easy to tune out if you can't take it anymore, but it is really between owners. And like, I would say um, the white collar version of bartenders, you know, service people who are probably paid pretty well and do have, um, you know, security in their jobs, but that's only a tiny fraction of people who um, this initiative would apply to, right? Yeah, that was the other piece that I think is so important about this hazard pay being a bit broad, this this um, section, is that the hazard pay that the city passed um, sort of late, late into the pandemic um, was very narrow. It only covered certain types of retail workers and tons of people were left out. And that's you know, when you're writing something like this, you want to include as many workers as you can, especially given that you're, you're writing a law into the future. You're not sure what kind of emergency might hit you. None of us, I don't think, anticipated a global pandemic coming to our doorsteps and shutting life down and changing everything and, and having all the effects that it, that it has had. Um, and I think that we have to prepare for future unknowns. Um, and so, you know, a major, uh, uh, sorry, a section like that, that hazard pay is that is written fairly broadly, it kind of leaves a lot of leeway for the city to be able to implement it in flexible ways um, and to be able to flex to what might come at us. Um, because we, let's be real, we don't really know. We didn't know this pandemic was coming in this way. Um, we knew about the possibility of pandemics, but we did not envision this kind of a fallout. We have known about climate change and wildfire smoke and um, record heat for years. Um, and I know that restaurants were still open this year when we had our super hot, what was it, heat dome? Um, people were still working in that heat in kitchens with ovens. I mean, that is a real thing. So um, I think most likely not because they wanted to, you know, not because it's like family on their side of the wall, you know, it's like they had to, or they would be fired. Yeah. And one of the things that the opposition brought up a lot during the debate was like, oh, well, if there's, you know, a fire or something out in the county, like why should workers in Bellingham get hazard pay? And do these employers not understand how many of their employees commute from places where housing is affordable on their low wages. Um, like when there's emergencies in Whatcom County, it affects Bellingham. Um, so that was a funny uh, framing that they were trying to use um, that I found really uh, either willfully ignorant or disingenuous. And I thought maybe it was a, a revised talking point that is widely promoted that if there's a state of emergency on the east side of the state, um, <laughs> I wish our listeners could see you all and your expressions on your face, but can someone out loud just 
we can just laugh, I guess. We can just giggle. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. So what I hear you saying is that that is not the case, right? This is the classic paternal, like, you know, over overstepping of like, oh, like you smoked a little pot. Are you going to like go do hard drugs now? Like, it's just, it's, it's the, the, how, how do I overstate this to make it scary? Because as it stands, it's like a a reasonable thing. Um, So. Yeah. I think it's their version of a, of a slippery slope argument. Like it's too broad, you know? Um, But I think our preamble in the initiative really provides really clear intent on, on when this, uh, when, a, when a worker would be entitled to hazard pay and when they wouldn't. And uh, yeah, kind of expect that, you know, the courts would, would, would uphold that too. With I that totally agree. And I think, um, you know, a word on the power of uh, manipulation, especially coming after the resolution from council, but also there are some folks um, who work at nonprofits and own restaurants and manage restaurants that have sort of seeded some of these ideas. And um, I had this moment where an individual who admitted to collaborating with y'all on the wording of initiative four um, was insisting that it was for all employees, not just on-site employees. And it is in the d- definitions. It's in there twice that I could find. Yeah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not a scholar of these initiatives, but I went back and read it because I was like, I'm pretty sure it's just people who are showing up to work. And they were convinced just from talking with their friends who weren't involved um, with people for Spellingham that it would be all employees. So for example, the Opportunity Council has so many employees who can work from home and others who can't. And I think those people should be um, given more money during a pandemic. If they're working with um, preschoolers and vulnerable populations and houseless folks, I mean, um, they're frontline workers, right? But for all of the people who you know sit at a computer, they can do that from anywhere. And so they're not considered on-site employees, right? I mean, can you just clarify that? Yeah, no, it's it's very clear in the initiative that this applies to on-site folks who work in public-facing or aggregate settings. So, you know, an aggregate would mean, so for instance, like the retail um, hazard pay that was finally given by Bellingham um, did not apply to folks necessarily in aggregate settings who were not doing public-facing re- retail. Maybe they were doing you know, something that involved production or, but they had to be on site and they had to be around a bunch of folks. And so, you know, this is inclusive of anybody who is going to be put at risk in an emergency situation when they have to report to their job. It does not apply to folks who get to work remotely from home or other chosen location. Um, It does not apply to folks who do not have a job that demands that they Um, place their body (laughs) and possibly that of their relatives, friends, and loved ones, right, Um, in harm's way. And that is very clear. But it really does show you the power of narrative and the power of that kind of fear-mongering and the kind of scare tactics that opposition often uses against anything that's progressive, whether that's like a minimum wage increase or whether that's hazard pay or whether that's you know, more rights for tenants. Um, There's always this kind of pushback and it is often weaponized against the folks who are the most vulnerable. So we're seeing, you know, that in businesses who are telling their staff, well, you should vote no because 
you will probably be laid off if if uh, Bellingham votes us in. That's extremely manipulative. And honestly, it's an awful position to take um, against your workers. And yet that is part of what these scare tactics and fear mongering um, practices engender. Right. And like Sage said, people saying, do you want the library to close? Do you want the YMCA to close? Like, absolutely not. Do I also want workers to be given fair wages and um, secure scheduling? Yes, I do. Yeah. I want, yeah. <laughs> I want uh, all those things. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to push back on, you know, uh, a lot of the nonprofits that are coming out against us and just any, any talking point that, you know, services will be reduced if this goes in. And, you know, in, in the nonprofit world, you know, I fail to see how, um, you know, a worker gives up, waves their their rights away, you know, to have a livable wage just because they're working for a, you know, a not profit. Um, that's something that we see all the time within the, the nonprofit industrial complex, unfortunately. And anecdotally, it's like, I, I know, uh, somebody who works for the library who is very for, uh, all four initiatives, uh, including four. Nice. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. Like you should love your job enough that, um, you don't get paid well, or you don't get to know what your life is going to be like two weeks ahead of time. I mean, that's, um, you know, and I think in nonprofit, the, the predictable schedule isn't really an issue because people work all the time, like in their free time. Um, and that, I think that's really a shame. Um, so I want to thank you all for being here and we're just about out of time, which is a bummer that went by really quick. Um, but I also want to give you each a chance just sort of last words on this because um, we're all going to be voting really soon. In fact, uh, I think ballots have arrived. They're here. <laughs> here. Yeah. So let's do this. Um, what, what do you have to say um, in closing about these initiatives? <laughs> it's funny. We're all waiting on each other to start. Uh, if it's okay, I'll, I'll start. Um, yeah, my ballot's in my mailbox. I always turn it in at the last minute so I can get everybody's mailers. Um, and I think the last thing that I have to say about these initiatives is read all of them and decide for yourself and look at who endorsed all of them, you know, Lemmy endorsed initiative one, the ACLU endorsed initiative two, like, um, there's so many community partners that have, you know, thought hard about this and chosen to, to support us. Um, like, thank you to C2C for having us on your radio show to at least like discuss, uh, what's, what's going on here. Um, like we, we, I don't know. We just, we have an opportunity to do something really special here. And if you don't like one, don't vote for it, but like take them all as they are and really make the best decision for yourself and your community. Um, and I hope that you vote for all four. Yeah. I'll just say that uh, these initiatives we're designed to expand the imagination of what is possible for the majority of people living here. You know, over half of us rent in Bellingham. Uh, we have no representation at any level of government. So we're really fighting for ourselves with initiative one. Um, but 
overall, you know, no matter how you feel about any of these initiatives, no matter how you feel, um, you know, about the contents of them, uh, definitely what Sage said, you know, you know, look at them individually, not as a whole package, even though that, you know, we're, we're clearly for all four. Um, but, you know, I'm really proud of all the conversation that these initiatives have started because we have not been having these conversations at this heightened uh, of a level. They haven't been brought to the ballot um, where the majority of people will see them. Um, so no matter what happens uh, on election day, don't let this be uh, the end of these conversations. Let this only be the beginning. Uh, that's certainly how I view it. Uh, and in bringing, you know, power back to working class people and building that long term here. Maya, close this out. Okay, wow. I mean, I don't even know how I can really build on that. It's that's pretty much it. I mean, I think expanding, you know, what we think of as being possible, um, for sure. Sage, I feel like, you know, reframing this as well, like you've said, um, as something that's really positive and amazing and historic. I think those are both really important. Um, I also just, you know, encourage folks beyond just like, you know, reading up on our initiatives and deciding how to vote, um, remembering that this is historic because it's part of a larger national conversation as well. And really like, you know, if you've got a question about something in, in one of these initiatives you're not sure about, like Google that and like read up on where else that's been passed and what's going on. And I think what you'll find is that um, it is really exciting. This is really forward moving. And there are more and more people, including the labor movement, um, who are realizing that we just have to change things. We just can't continue as is. Um, the pandemic has made that super clear to folks. I think some segments of our um, electorate have maybe gotten more comfortable than others and maybe forgotten that discomfort in the pandemic. And maybe they need to have a little jog and a little reminder um, of their memory of how difficult it has been for so many folks who live more precarious lives. And so this is a great opportunity to remember that about this community and vote for a Bellingham that is inclusive and that supports everybody here. Um, and so, yeah, I really hope folks vote yes on all of them. And thank you so much for having us on Community Walsh. <laughs> Absolutely. If folks have questions for you, how can they reach out? Um, email us if that's your style. But honestly, the best way to get questions answered is to come down to the farmer's market um, every Saturday morning and talk to our volunteers that have been involved in this campaign since the beginning, like have a face-to-face -face conversation, build a community relationship. Um, you know, stop us when you run into us in your neighborhoods, like uh, answer your doors. <laughs> um, yeah. And be on the lookout for uh, a frequently asked question uh, page coming up soon on our website. Nice. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thanks for Thanks having us. Thanks for having us. Bye. Ciao. From the top now. Okay. All right. Everyone just wants to fucking breathe. Nobody.